0: now I'm just starting to feel more confident and more like I'm able to share this story and every single time I would speak to something, first I shared my story of depression and then of the anxiety and then of the time when I was suicidal and then finally of the bulimia but it's almost like unlocking each of these memories to share and it took time but Eventually, I was speaking to large groups of people and just felt I was like, I'm really onto something here. Like, I, what I've been through is so absolutely common with most people that I speak to. Everyone has got their own story.
1: And that's Ryan Hopkins on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. A strong identity is everything, it connects to your appearance, the work you do, what you stand for, and who you associate with. But shit gets real when all of it is taken from you. It could send you into some very dark places. It can challenge who you were all along. But it can also push you out of your comfort zone to a beautiful place that you didn't think was possible. That was the case for Ryan Hopkins. Ryan was a man's man, a rugby player who loved the competitiveness and camaraderie of the game. An aspiring electrician, or sparky, as they like to say in the UK. A guy who liked to throw a few back with his mates in the local pub. But in an instant, Ryan's identity was taken from him after a brutal rugby injury. Unable to walk for a year, Ryan's mental health began to spiral. In his words, he had nothing. No money, no job, no identity. He was depressed and suicidal. But this is where Ryan's story begins. With the love and support of his mother, Ryan charted a new path that took him from being a selling machine at a bank to helping an indigenous family set up a hostile business in Ecuador, to going to university in England. Life was trending in the right direction, but it was far from perfect. Ryan had a number of challenges that he had to overcome on his journey, but the setbacks gave him the life experience to understand the importance of being well. It also gave him the platform to connect deeply with people by sharing his story, all of it, including his darkest moments. Today, Ryan is giving back. He is a well-being leader who helps companies create workplaces where employees can be happy, healthy, and more productive. He's also on a self-proclaimed journey to help 1 billion people. This is a fun conversation. Ryan delivers a very serious message but with a lot of levity and laughter. As you listen to our conversation, pause and ask yourself what is your identity and how would you respond if it were taken away in an instant? Second, how can you inspire others by vulnerably sharing a time when you were knocked down? And finally, what's one thing you can do to improve your well being at work and in life? I'm hopeful that these stories of rock bottom redemption are helping you through challenges in your life. Personally, they're helping me on my journey to being a better person. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give time to sing your song a five-star rating. Please also share your thoughts as well. It really does help in bringing awareness of these awesome stories. Please also share the podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. As I go deeper on this journey, it is becoming clearer by the day that Time to Sing Your Song is a platform for ordinary people to share their stories of how they overcame gnarly obstacles to live a life that they only dreamed about. And what's crazy is the variety of the stories that are coming to me. If you have a story or you know someone who does, reach out to me. Easiest way is to send me an email at mike at mikeatimetosingyoursong.com or you can send a direct message on social media. Mike Kearney on LinkedIn, and Kearney 33 on Twitter. Okay, let's get to it. Ryan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's not the first time we've been here, is
1: it? (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) But I do need to introduce you to everybody because you have got an accent. So tell us where you're from, Ryan.
0: I am from Hastings in the southeast of England, but I currently live in London. Love it.
1: So Ryan, we're going to jump right into your story. And we're gonna have a bunch of fun today. But uh, there was a time and a place where things weren't great for you. You had a pretty severe rugby accident when you were 19. Tell us what happened.
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, If you've ever spent much time here, Mike, you'll know that it rains fairly frequently. It's actually sunny right now, which is um, honestly so nice and makes me so happy. But it wasn't rainy, a fateful day. (laughs) All that time ago when I was, uh, wasn't sunny, sorry, all that time ago when I was 19, I was playing rugby and um, most time when you play here, it's wet and boggy and awful. Um, my foot stayed in the floor and I was tackled and my foot was still on the floor and I was horizontal. So spiral fractured my leg, dislocated both sides of my ankle and uh, didn't walk for about a year at that point multiple operations. and was in a wheelchair. I was trained to be an electrician at the time. My life was meant to be very, very different. Being someone from a small, smallest town in the UK with no qualifications, that's almost the only thing you have to do. And I lost that opportunity, that job, and my identity at the time.
1: Ryan, you're almost glossing over it though, because when we first talked about this accident, even though you just said that you broke your leg, tell us what it was like on the field and what they actually had to do to get you to the place where you didn't lose your leg.
0: Yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of important, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're like, just like, ah, I broke my leg. No big deal.
0: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, they just, they just popped it back. In. <laughs> no, um, so they didn't know my leg was broken, but the ankle was facing, my foot was facing the wrong way. So it was fairly, obviously, <laughs> like dislocated. So they were like, oh, they, t- they squeezed your toe to see if you still got circulation. There was no circulation in my foot. So they were like, oh, we got to push this back in. I was like, oh, all right, go on then. I'm high as a kite on gas and air anyway. I'm like, you can do what you want, like, I don't care. <laughs> so they were like they were like, okay, three, two, and they didn't know that my leg was broke, so it just pushed all the bones like up my leg, kind of thing. Mm. I'm not shorter on one side now, luckily, but that could have quite easily been the case. But um yeah, I passed out on the field and then woke up in hospital and then had uh, a couple of operations over that year and I was wheelchair bound for most of the year.
1: So talk about the aftermath. One of the things that you said, just from a a work perspective, you were training to become an electrician. That was off the table. Um, So maybe just touch on that a bit more. But but more importantly, kind of your mindset. I know that, you know, obviously you lost your ability to walk. Mm -hmm. We had talked about offline that you were gaining weight. You're a pretty fit guy before. You're depressed, suicidal, bulimia. Talk about all the shit that happened after the fact.
0: Yeah, so that happened and my identity was – being a rugby player, sparky or electrician. Um, and that was gone, completely gone. You lose contact with people and you start to become rather insular, put on a weight because I was unable to move and just eating just to, I don't know, I think just comfort eating really. Um, completely lost all sense of identity. I spoke to the doctors and they diagnosed me with uh, depression at the time. I said, okay, well, the best way to get out of it here you go is some tablets and they put me on quite strong antidepressants and they uh, kind of like made me hallucinate so I used to like go for a wheel myself around and I was near some woods and I saw myself like hanging from trees and I was like oh my god like I'm losing the plot and then at that point I thought well I've got nothing I had no I had no money I was 20 years old I was in debt had no qualifications, had no job, no prospects, no life, no career, no hobbies, nothing. I literally had nothing, and I was like, ah, "Screw this! Like, I'm done!" Like, so yeah, I was wanted to kill. I was pretty close to uh, killing myself at that time.
1: Was there anybody you could turn to at that time?
0: Yeah, my mum. If it wasn't, for, if it wasn't
1: for my mum, I wouldn't be here now. Mm. She's the best. A lot of your it sounds like it a lot of your friends that were buddies before weren't there any longer it sounds like
0: they were around but like you don't want to see them when you're in your deepest darkest place you your x amount like multiple stone heavier you feel like a piece of shit like you just don't want to see people who you want to mm. think well of you see so like you kind of take yourself away they're always there like they're always there when i needed them but i chose to like isolate myself and then it becomes a self-perpetuating circle, doesn't it? After that.
1: And your aspiration you said before was to be, I love the word a sparky. So an electrician sparky. Yeah. Uh, we don't use that term over I didn't that did know. That's why that's why awesome, that's
0: <laughs> why I, I translated for you, Mike. So I was thinking, is that a
1: Britishism? I'm sorry sure it is. <laughs> Actually I like it more. So you were sparky. Yep. And even at that point in time you said, you know, that was about as good as it was going to get for you. That was kind of was- your ceiling. Yep. So now you've lost that, you're depressed, you're suicidal. So how did you how did you start to move forward? Like what happened?
0: So I managed to get a job in a bank, uh, in a like a retail bank in the UK, as a teller, you know, like on the counter. And I, I hobbled up to this place with the interview, I had my crutches and a little like binder under my arm and I studied for ages and um, I managed to get the job and I was so proud of myself. And because uh, it's a long old journey to get back to walking and stuff like that, and, I and was, how long?
1: Just before we go, how long was this after the accident? Because it sounded like you were kind of a year. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um. And I got the job there, and I could sell ice to an Inuit. Like I was pretty good at selling. Like I get to know people. I'm like, you all right, How's it going? What do you need? What are you saying? Like. Look at the account, and always have a bit of fun, and be a bit cheeky, like a cheeky chappy. Do you know what I mean? Right, and I um, do. But
1: you, but, but Ryan, before we go there, because this sounds like, oh, you know what? I went from, you know, a not suicidal. Quite, not, quite, not quite that.
0: Not quite that easy.
1: <laughs> not yeah, it's not that easy. So you were like suicidal, depressed. The doctors yeah. are feeding you on medication. Yeah. Um, which almost is becoming a common theme. It's like somebody's got a shitty life. Give them medication. And it almost seems like it exacerbates the problem. Which I don't know if that it was is. the case here. But, but how did you go from that place, yep. like you felt like shit to like, now you're even studying to take this test so that you could become a bank teller and you get a job. Like what happened in between?
0: Uh, it was, it was the bank job that like kept me going. That was the next step, but it didn't solve the issues because I got the ability to walk again and I started doing that and focusing on that. And then I started to level up my diet because then you start to see some changes and... I focused on those things. I got myself to the gym, but then I went too far with it and I, uh, developed bulimia. So I mm. used to, um, yeah, everyone knows what bulimia is. I don't need to get into that, but, and so I took it too far and then that became another crutch for me for about eight years on and off that I used to struggle with that. Cause I was like, well, I've got the ability to walk and, do things now. And I had no ability. I had everything taken away from me. So I took too much and I went too far to the other side of the spectrum. I was like, I'm going to control everything. And I went so far that I was only eating like chicken and broccoli. And at one point I was trying to, I got so lean that I was trying to talk while on the counter. I lost, about, I think 40 kilos, 35 kilos. Like well, pounds, is that's going to be like eighty pounds or something?
1: Wow, wow.
0: Um, and I was on the counter and trying to talk, and I was then I was unable to talk at points. So I, they called my mum. I think the ladies in the store They used to look after me, like the young, the young man, and he was treating me like aunties. And I used to have to go and make the tea all the time because in the UK we drink tea every fifteen minutes for some reason. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I like a cup of tea. Don't get me wrong, but some people drink so much of it. But uh, they called my mum because they knew what I'd been through before. Because I, share I shared it with them. Um, they said, I think something's wrong. So she took me for a walk and we went to a cafe and I tried to speak to her and I told her about it. And she's the first person I told about the bulimia. And she made me sit with her and have a piece of cake that we shared. And we sat together for hours afterwards to make sure I didn't go and throw it up. And we sat and we spoke and moved through it. But yeah, it was years that I had that, yeah, just, it was, I don't know. I felt like I had the ability, I was able to control it. Having everything taken away from you and feeling absolutely like there's nothing that you can control in your life. The first thing you want to do is get it all back and get your arms around everything. Something that I still struggle with a little bit in all honesty, but I've got a much better grip on it now.
1: I'm thinking that I'm somebody out there that is going through a tragedy like you did or mm-hmm. once again, and I'm rewinding the clock a little, um, yep. I just want to make sure that I capture this because mm-hmm. you were as kind of low as it goes yep. and something happened to change your situation, even though obviously it sounds like there were still issues like, uh, bulimia and, and some of the other challenges you had to overcome, but was there a moment when you were at your darkest spot in that year period after the rugby accident mm-hmm. where you said, something's got to change. And and really what I'm looking for, Ryan, is is using your story potentially to inspire others that are kind of at rock bottom to say, you know what, I can't I, I know change. the
0: point. I know the point you're looking for. And I'm just struggling to see it or think about it. I think for me, it was just the constant like love from my mom and mm. family and checking in. She's got her own demons and it's something that we seem to suffer within the family our neural chemistry is not quite right or maybe we're just unfortunate um so always checking in with her and talking with her and over time seeing that there was another way out that when you start to get one or two wins and things start to tick in your favor that you start to collect those and cherish them and it was simply the fact that I was able to move again was the catalyst for doing the next thing and then that then unlocked the ability to go to the gym and then start to feel a bit better about myself. And the job unlocked a bit more self-worth, which then unlocked further developments. So I can't see like one moment, but I think it was, if I had to explain it, it was simply just the care and affection of my mom.
1: Yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm thinking about that because there is a really important point there and, you know, I've probably been on both sides where, you know, you're looking for help, but then you're also there to help. And I think sometimes when you're somebody like your mom, you may be thinking, I'm giving this love, but are they accepting it? Do they know that the love is there? And I think mm-hmm. to a certain degree, I'm not saying this is your point, but the outcome of your story is because my mom was there every single day, even in the lowest moments, that's one of the things that pulled me through. And and one of the messages that's that it. I receive that's is that's don't exactly give up. Yeah, yeah, Don't man, give up like, on somebody.
0: We're getting there. We're getting there. You're getting it out of me. I knew you would. <laughs> like. <laughs> This is, this is exactly it. And I now do this for a lot of people, but, and it's not, you might not be appreciated. They might not want you right now, but they want you and they need you. And You just have to keep being there and turning up, right? You've got someone that's going through some shit. They might not appreciate you. Most of the time, in fact, they will probably unappreciate you or like just won't want you there. But just by you being there and continuing to turn up and being that energy that person that rock that they can count on this might be exactly all they need and whenever they are good and ready at their own time they will come to you but they won't come until they are good and ready all you can do is just focus on continue to turn up and continue to support that person show unconditional love and that was what my mum did for me and over a period of time then I started to turn it around myself people will only change when they are good and ready. All you can do to support those people is just be there.
1: And Ryan, do you have any insight on that? Because you made that point, I think in a a LinkedIn post uh, somewhere that I read, where you talked about the fact that you were exposed to a lot of love. So we just talked about your mom, but you also were exposed to some incredible uh, programs and even other people that you had come to know, but that it almost required you to be ready to change. Is there any, I don't know, deeper level insight other than that just happens at some point in time?
0: These questions, man, are like good questions.
1: <laughs>
0: I love it. Um, it, I don't, I don't know. I just think only when you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And that saying is so true for all of these things. And it might just be some, like the sun is shining here in London today and things feel slightly lighter and I feel like I'm able to take that first step. It's about meeting people where they are, understanding, because the world's best solution with all the bells and whistles, the, th- the best thing in the world might seem like too big a step for people. So you need to meet them where they are, understanding their perspective, where they're at at the moment, the moment in time, how they feel, everything, and try and come to them with something they can do to get a small win. I think when you start to see those little things, you gain gaining confidence, but when you're at a point where you feel like there's nothing left, even like tackling a solution an application attending a webinar will make you feel like shit. And like it just then all these like webinars and additional things are amazing. But if you don't have time for yourself, and you're really struggling, if you go to one of these, you are going to feel multiple times worse, right? Because you're not ready, you're not ready. And you need just time, you need a bit of time to look after yourself and take those little steps and do the little things that matter to you. Because what you need is different to me. What I need is different to someone else, and you gotta take time to listen and find out what those things are. Because we want solutions that work for other people. There's no solution that works for everyone. Everyone is different. You just have to take the time and work out what that is.
1: Yeah, you know what? You you talked about something um, that came up in a interview I just did a week or two ago. I'm actually dropping it tomorrow. Where uh, this lady, her name's Nassim Rachet, talked about. Tiny wins, that was the words that she used. Uh, You used small wins. Talk about how small wins were important to your progress.
0: That's everything. I I love James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. You know, small, smart wins, small, smart choices with consistency over time, equal radical difference. And if you improve by 1% every day for a year, you're 3,778% better at the end of the year with compound interest. I love that shit.
1: And we didn't even tee that damn question up, but damn you had the response, right? Yeah, mate, don't worry about it. I'm a scat
0: factory. You ask me about you asked me about my history, I'm like, oh I feel a bit funny but you ask about You asked about these stats, I got you, mate. Trust me. This is what I do, mate. <laughs> but um my my people I work with laugh, they're just like, well we need a statistic for this. They look to the side, like, go on then. I know you're gonna do one. <laughs> but um the the small wins are everything, and often well-being is also is no small thing that Zeno said that the original stoic well-being is no small thing, but it's made up of small things. You don't get into good shape by having one big, like healthy meal. You have to make small, smart choices with consistency over time. And that is everything. But you don't feel like that at the moment. So and sometimes you're going to fall off. You're going to have something that's not in your diet. You're going to make a decision that's not in keeping with the person you want to become. But that's cool. You need to consider that it's, it's choices over time. And I just found that slowly over years and years and years, I've got of the story, we're still at like point A, right? There's so many things that happen to get me to the point I'm at now, but I now, the, all the small wins I track every day, I have a little habit tracker that I use and I check in mm-hmm. with myself at the end of each day and it's like a tick, the boxes I can walk through what they are as well, if you want another point. <clears throat> And I've actually got like a, like how long I've been doing each thing. And I've got a streak and everything else. And I think it's these little things daily, the tiny things that we do actually have the biggest impact on ourselves.
1: It's always easy when you're talking about it now that you're living this good life. And we're going to talk about all the great things that you're doing now, but go back several years and share what a small win was like. And and the reason why I'm asking uh, for this, Ryan, is The term small is there for a purpose. This isn't like you did something incredible on day one. It was something very small. So give us an example of a small win.
0: I remember a funny memory about where this takes me. A small win was um, going to buy some smart shoes for the job in the bank because I would never needed smart shoes working as a spark. <laughs> so you still toe up boots that for me was a was a small win for me in the way i felt and then starting to feel smart and like a professional and someone that wanted people wanted to listen to whereas a year before that i hadn't i'd hardly ventured outside the house really apart from in the wheelchair to go to the shops
1: that so is great. an awesome win because if you just step back and you think about it You'd been sitting in your house, like you just said, for a year, and the fact that you had the gumption, the, the confidence, whatever the hell got you off your ass to go to a place to buy some shoes so that you could move to this, this new job is incredible. I do want to take it back to that new job because that's where I kind of think I kind of cut you off and we've mm-hmm. diverted all these different ways over the last 10 or 15 minutes. So you go into this bank. It sounds like you you pass a test. So that's a pretty big deal at this point in time. So maybe if you could talk about, um, that job and what you did and why, why that was almost the foundation and I may be overstating it, but kind of the foundation for where you are today.
0: I think it led to it. It was, it got me out of the hole as it were. Um, in the bank, I was pretty good. I was able to sell and I was actually one of the top salesmen in the UK for the bank for lead generation. This is when I started to think, oh, maybe I have a I have an aptitude for this sort of stuff. Maybe i can do more than like what I was well, the limit I put on myself from when I was younger. Um, and I was there for about a year and a half and started to develop a stronger sense of self and what I was able to do. But still at that moment in time I wasn't very confident. I was still suffering with bulimia and anxiety. It was um I actually packed it all in. I sold all of my stuff and then flew one way with an ex-girlfriend to South America, to Argentina. So that was where I think it really began.
1: I did want to, want to just touch on the fact that you were really good at selling. Is this a skill that you think you even knew you had before joining the bank or did it come out while you were talking to customers?
0: I've always been a gregarious outgoing sort of person I've actually learned that I'm more insular perhaps and more introverted than I once thought and I enjoy reading and other things I never really did as a kid Um, but I got there and I've always been quite good been able to read people and I just thought this is something I was able to do and really enjoyed that but... No, I don't, i never, it was never something I learned. I think it's just an ability to see people, to have an emotional intelligence, to understand and flex a conversation according to which, how it's going and how people are feeling and listening and saying what people want to hear almost like just, I don't know, it's just simply being a people person. I think that is the biggest, most underrated skill that you can have for most business. If you just take a second to get to know the person, then you, you can become a people person.
1: That, that is so important because if you just go back a few minutes, you were saying, you know, my ceiling was a sparky and electrician, mm-hmm. even though you had this skill there that maybe you didn't recognize was something that could actually help you in business. And your point, which I think is an excellent one is there's a lot of people out there that may not see you know a future ahead of them it's really there but they've got these skills like something as simple as just being a damn people person which i would argue in many respects is one of the most important 100%. ingredients of being successful right and and here that was in you but you didn't see it so what does that what does that tell you now that you reflect back on that
0: my parents split when i was fairly young um and for one reason or another i wasn't really able to get any qualifications when I was younger. I'm dyslexic, dyspraxic, and I've got ADHD, but I wasn't diagnosed until being an adult. I just don't think... I don't know. I didn't really get the support required at school and with everything going on at home, I just didn't get any qualifications. And as a result, didn't really believe that I was capable of anything. more. I think it all goes down to belief and what you're told. If you're told that you'll be a Sparky and that's great, you'll be a sparky and that's great and you'll be happy with it, that's cool. And that's no dramas at all. I know some very wealthy sparks who were very, very happy who're earning much more money than me. (laughs) 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 But like then you work in a bank, you're told that's great, that's your expectation, that's your roof, you accept that. I think only when you start to see that you're capable of more, and most of us are not taught that in the education system, especially coming from like poorer parts of the UK and I know it's exactly the same in the States, right? If you're not from an affluent place and you don't grow up in an affluent family and you're from a low socioeconomic background, then you're not going to believe you're capable of anything more. And your ceiling is going to be where you and everyone else around you place it. Only when you start to see what you're capable of and little flashes does it start to unlock stuff. It took years, years and years and years for me to even believe or conceive that I'm able to do what I'm doing now. Today, I got it agreed, Mike, I'm doing a TED talk. Can you believe it? I've done a flipping TED talk.
1: (laughs) Well, I can believe it. But I think there's something there, Ryan, that I'd love you to to weigh in on. Because I've got a belief that, going back to belief, that if you can overcome that limiting belief that may have been positioned because of your upbringing, your parents, whatever was going on when you were a kid. But if you can overcome that, to a certain degree, you've got a superpower over people that didn't go through that. Because now you've seen that you can overcome some of the biggest obstacles, and as a result uh, of that, you think differently. Now, that's not to suggest that people that have these obstacles in the way have it easy. That's not what I'm saying. But no. if you can somehow figure out a way to overcome that, it could be a superpower. What do you think about that?
0: One hundred, a hundred percent. Like you know, you know, kintsugi. Do you know the concept of kintsugi, Mike? You probably uh, yeah, probably do, so. Yeah.
1: I do well. It's funny because the lady that I just interviewed talked about that being that Japanese philosophy being yeah. core to her recovery. So yeah, it's funny that you just mentioned. I had that no idea philosophy. at the time,
0: right? I'm like, yeah. I'm hella broken. Of <laughs> all these things I've been through, loads of things, and like, but I'm hella sparkly and I'm fucking strong. <laughs> so yeah. like, this plate has been dropped more times than you can imagine, but as a result. I've been to hell and back, like in my own head, right? There's no tougher battle than the one you'll fight in your own head. And as a result, I'm pretty bloody resilient now. And I've got a healthy dose of perspective, what the people I try and help can go through on a daily basis. And I wouldn't change any of my experience as much as they hurt at the time. It's what makes me who I am, the empathetic person who wants to change the world as a result of those things. If I didn't go through them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now.
1: Totally.
0: So, 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 so zero regrets.
1: I, I raise that just because there are people that are listening that are like, "My life sucks. Yeah. There's no way it's going to get better." And I guess what I'm it saying it directly like it to doesn't you. Doesn't feel
0: like it at the time, does it? Of course it doesn't. No,
1: of course it doesn't. But 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 I th- would say to them, just realize that when you overcome. This challenge that is in front of you, you are going to be stronger than everybody else. Hell yeah! And that is one of the things that I always think about. And and I actually just a not even a funny example because it's a real life. My my younger son, he's fourteen. He just won um, the three hundred meter championship for his districts. This was after a year where he fell in the district championship last year. Was five out of eight, even though he had the best qualifying time. This year he was, and this is not, this is not, you know, this is sports who really cares, but it's important to him. This year he was um, the third fastest qualifier. So he was number three. So he's not projected to win. Mm -hmm. And he ended up winning by a second and a half. And we had been talking about the whole time to use those setbacks as a way to focus your energy so that you could win. And that's exactly what he did. Now, that is a very silly little example in a 14-year-old's life. It isn't, isn't,
0: though, right? Because what happens for him and what happens to me are not comparable. But he went through some stuff. He felt pain. He failed. He tripped. He fell. He aired. And he got back up. He dusted himself off. He used that fire and he got after it. And I think that's that's it, it.
1: Right. Well, and your story is... You know, I literally couldn't walk for a year. I had no hope. I was depressed. I started to get a little traction when I went and worked for the bank. Mm-hmm. started to figure out that there were skills that I had that i didn't even I didn't even know probably would help me kind of in more of the corporate world. But then you work for a year and a half at the bank and you're like well i'm 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 good with this. Let's go to South America, so let's pick it up there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> such a nice segue <laughs> um yeah, one way towards Argentina. Uh, Sarah and I went and the first job we just said oh we're just going to travel just get some volunteering work open-ended ticket I managed to scratch together about two grand by selling all my stuff that I had my car everything. I had a piece of shit car so I didn't get much money for it but uh, I got together everything I could and we were like oh we're going to travel so worked in a farm in Argentina uh, school in Chile hostels uh, bars in Bolivia and Peru then taught myself teaching myself Spanish on the way and I, when I get like really into something I get really into it and that's the that's my like obsessive nature that's something I wasn't able to funnel when I was younger and I've learned as I got older that as I get older it's almost like a superpower but only when I'm really interested. And I was like, oh, I'm going to learn Spanish. And I was on Duolingo. If anyone's done that, they'll know that. <laughs> yeah I mean, honestly, I had like a 452-day streak. I was like, I'm not letting that little guy down. And I was like, I'm on this. I must have been like, I was like Duolingo is like top player. I was honestly, the points, I was like, yeah, you better believe I'm smashing all these trees out. So I do that every day in a little book and I write it down. And I was fluent, fluent by the time I got to Ecuador uh, six months in. And we helped a... Uh, indigenous family set up a hostel business uh, built the huts on the side of a mountain put them on booking.com got them financed in the bank I did it all in Spanish and I was like that was pretty cool And I was like I want to use then I'm really starting to lift the idea of my self-limitations at that point I'm like you know what I can do more I just flipping opened a hostel business in Ecuador on the side of a mountain in Spanish do I mean Mm. I'm not I'm not meant to be doing this shit I was like this is not me but you know what it is me and I was like I want to go to university and so I said to Sarah I said I want to go to uni and she said I want to carry and traveling and she did her thing and I did mine so we left each other in Colombia I flew back to the UK I was like I'm going to go to university but no university their top the students they're looking for are not former electricians with no qualifications are they <laughs> surprise surprise Probably. no they're not mike i'll tell you that mate
1: they're not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but- <laughs> isn't that isn't that sad though i mean if you just step back and and i'm not as familiar with the uh schooling or college system in in the uk but i mean you were exactly the type of person that i would die to work with somebody that you know was thoughtful you just talked about the fact that when you were interested in something, you would go to the end of the earth to learn it. Mm-hmm. And like you're exactly the type of person yet, the university wouldn't look at you.
0: Yeah, so I didn't know how to speak about myself or blow my own trumpet as it were. Again, I don't know if that's another British saying, but to say, like <laughs> to tell people, yes, I am the person you're looking for. And I didn't really know how to do that at that time because I don't know, you don't feel that much confidence, but eventually I scratched together an application and must have been the long shot because I was given a, given a chance at an undergrad. Moved moved to London, did my first year, uh, was able to focus while I was studying and I got a high first class in my first year, which I was immensely proud of. And I thought, oh, actually, I actually want to see if I can transfer to a better institution. So I tried my luck to move up to Oxford Brooks. So I was like, applying there Managed to step up to Oxford Brooks. at which point I put a lot of pressure upon myself because I was like, you are a failed electrician. This is your one and only shot. You've got no money to fall back on. You're borrowing tens of thousands of pounds to make this work. You better make this work. I put so much pressure on myself that I developed a pretty serious like anxiety disorder, so much so that I felt like I couldn't leave my flat without feeling like I was gonna piss myself, which was horrible. But at this point, I'm training a lot, and I'm quite a big guy now. I'm about uh, about 17 milestone. But like I was about to when, when
1: you say training, you're you're going to the gym and yeah, lifting yeah, like heavy lifting.
0: Yeah. I, used, I pulled double decker buses and lifted cars and squatted, Jeez. squatted over 500 pounds. Jeez. So um, I was pretty strong, and uh, but I was so anxious that I could explode, and I couldn't really spend any time outside of uh, my flat without feeling incredibly uncomfortable. Ryan,
1: just think about that for a second, because from outward appearances, most people would probably say, this dude really has gotten his life together. (laughs) Like, right? Like, look at, like, he's come back to the UK. He's in school. He's doing well. The guy is lifting. He looks great.
0: Life is freaking great, but that's what what
1: you're saying. Yeah.
0: No, no, far from it. Like, what was going on on the outside could not have been further removed from what was going inside my head you never have any idea what anyone's going on what they got going on with their life even never, never any idea a big small good looking anything tall short male female other anything you have no idea so I tried to do all the things that I thought were the right things to, to look after myself and feel confident but I still felt awful within myself um well yeah but was able to graduate with a high first class degree. I had anxiety medication on and off during that period, depression medication on and off again. It never it helped for a little bit, but then I came back to that empty feeling. But most of it the next time round was about what next and all the pressure I'd put on myself and I was applying for grad jobs, grad jobs, grad jobs. I applied for hundreds. And I managed to get a grad job at Deloitte. One of my friends worked there and I like, studied with him for the interview. And I was like, I spent like two weeks with him. I was like, I need to know everything about this company. I learned it, the ins and outs, Mike. I actually started, I think, when did your podcast start, the Deloitte one?
1: Uh, the Resilient one, yeah. I think in 2016, 2015, I, I think I
0: started man. listening to it before I joined like, as I was recruiting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but um
1: I, that probably screwed you up. I, I apologize for whatever. I, it, I was, like, it was negative it. points for sure, hundred <laughs> percent. They
0: were like, "You sound like this Mike Kearney from over the states. We don't do that over here in the UK." <laughs> exactly. None, none exactly. of that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, oh. yeah, managed to yeah managed to get on the grad scheme, and then this was the time that I really started to share some of the things that I've been through because I found that people would gravitate towards me because I bring a lot of energy right and I have a lot of fun and I'm always that sort of person even if I never felt like it but now I'm just starting to feel more confident and more like I'm able to share this story and every single time I would speak to something first I shared my story of depression and then of the anxiety and then of the time when I was suicidal and then finally of the Bulimia, but it was almost like unlocking each of these memories to share. And it took time, but eventually I was speaking to large groups of people and just felt, I was like, I'm really on to something here. Like I, what I've been through is so actually common with most people yeah. like I speak to. Everyone has got their own story, right? Time to tell your story, right? And go on.
1: Well, I was just going to ask you. How do you think sharing your story helped you with your recovery? Because it sounded like when you came into delete, you were still dealing with a lot of this stuff. So did it yeah. help you?
0: I was still on uh, antidepressant medication when I started. And it took time to find my feet. And I was—I did feel like a Nord sausage for the first few years, to be honest with you, Mike. So I'm a bit loud and I'm not well-spoken. Uh, for anyone over in the States, this is not a posh accent. <laughs> They're like, oh, he sounds nice. No, 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 no. (laughs) Anyone anyone in the UK is going to be like, yeah, not posh. Um, But so a lot of people who go to Deloitte in the UK are privately educated and they've been to good schools and very, very different upbringing to myself. And I felt very different, but I felt like where I really could stand my own. And I never felt like I could speak as well as other people. I felt the way I would come across was a bit more relax and I was always concerned about the things but where I really came into my own was helping people to talk about the things that they've been through I think the pain and the things that I had suffered and the things that I had experienced enabled me to better understand other people and I was every time I came back to it, I was like oh this is me this is me I was like this is what I was put here to do and I did years of consulting eventually uh, I was working with a big client and I was able to set up the well-being function for 500 people there. And I was like, oh my God, like, I was so energised. I thought I could explode. And I was like, yeah, this is me. Like This is my jam. This is what I do. I was nominated for an award and I kept pulling me back into programmes and projects I didn't care about. And I said, I can't do this. I said, i found what it is. I need Finally to found do that. that thing. Yeah, I was like, yeah. this is me. I was like, I need to combine like the experience of... Like digital transformation and preparing organisations for future of work with the well-being element, the human element. They were like, "Nope, get back over here, you back into the hole." Like, like these like just report generation roles. And I was like, "I got more to offer than that." I was like, "They were like, I was told, oh, you can't be a showman all the time. Like, you just got to look and sound like other people." And I was like, "You know what? Screw this. Like, I'm not. I'm not doing this." So I handed them a notice, and went to a big UK supermarket to lead wellbeing. And that was when I said, if I wanna be a leader in this space and develop and create a market and a role, I need to start really sharing and turning up and being regular on socials. And that was three and a bit years ago.
1: And And I gotta say, just out of everybody on social, uh, you are top 1%. I oftentimes (laughs) say that like, you know, social media, there's such an opportunity if anybody out there is listening to take, you know, broader corporate social media to the next level because 99% of it is like regurgitated content, not interesting, playing it safe. Ryan, you're not like that at all.
0: <laughs> I, I love that too. <laughs> I appreciate that so much, Mike, because as I said, I listened to your stuff back in then when we started speaking. I was like, oh, this is cool. This is a nice moment. Um, I... I think you differentiate, you're on LinkedIn, right? You're a smart human. You've got, uh, you're a knowledge worker, the chance are, if you're on LinkedIn, the differentiator is not being smart. Stop comparing your brain with mine, right? We're both right. smart people. Well, you're, I don't know, you're, you, Mike, I'm not too sure, but the rest of us on there, we're pretty
1: smart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm
0: joking. You can't be big now. <laughs> um, but like your differentiator is just don't be an arse. Like, be fun, have a good time. Like I've got to spend my entire time with you if I work. Most of my waking time is spent with you. I want to do it with someone I enjoy. And right. I focus on over-indexing that part. I share statistics and goings-on, but I try and do it in a fun and engaging way. My, me and Mike were chatting before. I shared a post on South Park today. That's the first of me for LinkedIn. I do videos from my toilet. I'll explain that more in a second. Like, Don't take this. Yes, everything's serious. Yes, there are people going through some crazy stuff, but often the best way to get them is to be a bit lighter, oh. right? To meet them where they are, to make things a bit like, we've come with a bit of brevity because life can be pretty bloody serious at the moment. Like inflation's crazy. You've got the war in Ukraine, everything else. It can seem like one thing after another. All it can take sometimes is someone just to be a bit ridiculous and it makes things feel a bit lighter. But I started sharing anyway when I started at uh, Sainsbury's writing and speaking. And I was like, I'm going to, I just said like two times a week, two times a week on socials, no ifs, no buts, no maybe, start doing it. And I got I started doing it and I was the wellbeing leader, the head office for like 7,000 people and led collaboration. And I was starting to do more and more, doing innovative things. I was able to improve happiness there through the pandemic. And I was made redundant. But I was like, no, I found what it is I'm meant to do. It was a kick in the nuts for sure. But then I got a... Role with a big fintech as the future of work lead, and I was able to roll out unlimited paid vacation for 10,000 people, a flexible approach to hybrids, four and a half day work week trial, rights disconnect policy. And I'm thinking this is the future of well being. This is better than webinars, applications, solutions, fixing people when they're broke. I heard a beautiful metaphor for it the other day. Why stop fishing people out the river when they're drowning. I walk upstream and find out why they're falling in or being pushed in the first place. And that's literally the journey that I've been through with all of this stuff. So I've gone, been at a place at Deloitte the first time and the first wellbeing job where I was supporting people when they were struggling, talking about it awareness. And that's so important, but to move to a place, a workplace where people can thrive, we need to consider reducing the things that are making the stress in the first place. Cause you can't, the biggest cause of stress is workloads.
1: I was going to ask you that. What? What? Why are people so using your metaphor of going, you know, upstream, yep. finding out what the problems are? Why are people so miserable at work right now? I, mate, work. Y- you know all the stats. They're they're yeah. they're crazy. Like people don't like their jobs for the most part.
0: Three billion people globally are miserable at work. In the UK, only nine percent of people are engaged by their work. We log in, we log off, or we do our work. We could not care less. And is it surprising? Because post pandemic compared to pre-pandemic I told you, stats are coming out now, Mike, you voted in. This is what's happening, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a 250% increase in meetings post pandemic compared to pre. Two hundred and fifty percent. With no change in the ways of working. And now we're back in the office. And also you've got to try to and have a date in life and get through Tinder at least. <laughs> you know I mean? Or like have have a friendship group or go to the gym or do something else. Like the our perception of what work is hasn't changed, but the tools we use have changed dramatically. So our attitude towards them needs to change, but it hasn't. And as a result, we are just inundated with information, with content, with notifications, with emails, everything. And when you finish, you go on the social media to relax. It's a nonstop stream of information and we're constantly processing. And I think this is why. The biggest cause of stress, double anything else in the workplace is workload, not a lack of solutions. And I started to see this more and more at my last role. And I was like, had a huge impact on the people. So I focused on teaching everyone how to use the tech properly. So, cause you know, if you got six meetings a day, I wish I had six, I imagine your diary was hectic when you were- when you It was, were it's right. great now, I have to say. I can imagine, <laughs> I can imagine. Anyway, if you've got six meetings a day, and you cut each one by five minutes, you'll save six, uh, three work weeks a year. And that's mental, right? And you think this is across the, I sort of taught everyone how to do these little tips and tools and everything else. I'm sharing it on social media and people are starting to pick it up. And I spoke at The Economist and I was speaking at Microsoft and I spoke at Google. No, not Google, Amazon, I got confused. Google's not on the list yet, but I'm sure it will be. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's going amazing. I saved the business uh each person five hours per week. So we cut their work week just by focusing on these practical things. And I was like, wow, this is the this is the impact that we want to have, right? This is the future of well being. And I was uh gone.
1: Yeah, I'm glad I'm sorry for cutting you off, but because oh, you mate. brought something up that I think is really important because I would always joke that you can't and I probably have said this on this podcast, but you can't meditate a bad job away. And I'm being obviously extremely oh, facetious. Right. And totally I agree. I love meditation more than anything, but you've hit on the one thing that I think impacts uh, people being miserable and creating stress and as the number of hours they work. And so what it sounds like you're doing is you're giving them tips and tricks to cut the number of hours. But I'm curious, what about just the overload of work that people give you? Do you have any ideas or best practices on managing that? Because you know, sometimes you could optimize your workday and mm-hmm. your meeting schedule, but you're still being given way too damn much work, which I think sometimes is at the epicenter of the problem. At least from my vantage point. What yeah, do you yeah. Think on that,
0: um uh, mate, hundred percent. There's a few things here to th- consider. So first, most workplaces measure effectiveness on input. If we we're in a workplace where we create something that doesn't just measure, like some people paid hourly, right? That's the way that is you yep. can't change that and they get paid for the hours they work which is fair most a lot of us are on salaries and we still measure people's effectiveness by time and seats like how long are you in the office mm. i mean like the classic yep. way of measuring productivity it's nonsense it just doesn't work like time time in seat doesn't equal value measure me on what i produce and the effect i have on people around me not how long i sit here doing it if i'm multiple times more effective than you, (laughs) why should I be here for longer? Right? I'm going to produce the stuff. Let's focus on the outcomes, what we produce and no positive effects on everyone else. So when we get to a workplace, we can help them consider how they move to that place. So how can I measure the output, the outcomes, and then give people the space to work in a way that suits them. Then we can leverage up the flexibility, the space, the time, and let people prioritize what they need each day to be their best selves as well as being more productive at work this change in mindset from inputs to outcomes i think is really helpful another thing i'm trying to do just quickly is uh was it i think it was a quick no a slow yes no slow yes i love that so yeah, yeah it's either it's either a fuck yeah or it's a no basically yeah. so like i have to think about things i don't say yes straight away sometimes even if it's in the future you discount your future time at the expense of current time essentially so you think oh it's in the future it doesn't matter that won't come around i'm not going to do it now because i don't want to but i'll say yes because it's awkward for the future now nah. if it's not an absolute yes if you wouldn't love to do it now then it's a no and if it's not and if you're not sure then you just say i'll get back to you i'll let you know I'm getting right. better and better at start doing these things. Well, it's really difficult because I love what I do. And over the past three years, I've told you I was sharing and writing. Now I've engaged over 5 million people on social media with the stuff that I do. I've spoken to like 50,000 people face-to-face. And now I'm in, now the pace of it is speeding up. So I'm engaging over 100,000 a week. And I love it. And I look at so many amazing messages from people like, I so appreciate you sharing and what you're doing and how you're trying to configure the workplace, all this stuff. And it's it's the most gratifying thing in the world. And I want to have every single one-to-one and call and a bit of time with someone. But I worked out the other day, I had like 23 DMs and like seven requests for my time of like 30 minutes each <laughs> at which point like i wouldn't be finishing work until 10 p.m and then i'll be flipping miserable
1: the next day <laughs> so well, then, then you will not be well there's a <laughs> well, great irony right
0: so i'm like with all jubis i'm trying to so it's over like it's a slow no a quick sorry a quick no slow yes but what i'm doing then on the back end of that because i want to interact with these people and everyone is trying to learn to leverage my time better So I have my Audacious Goals Club, a LinkedIn live session I do once a month. So now I point people to that if they want to see what I'm all about. So I'm learning how to leverage up, learn how to say no, and then how to use the tech around me to configure my digital boundaries as well. And I try and help people with this.
1: Ryan, you said something really important that I've thought about, but not in the context that you said it. And that is that we have a tendency as kind of humans to discount our time in, in the future. And I actually... I experienced that last week and I'm not going to say exactly what it is Mm because I don't want to call it out, but I agreed months ago to do something and I did it. And quite frankly, it took me a while to get ready for it. It wasn't like something I could just kind of do on a whim. We
0: do this all the time. We we totally all the time. And I'm just trying to think now if I would that I read something somewhere. If you wouldn't do it tomorrow, say no. I
1: love I wish I I wish I wish I heard that because in the moment I was like, this is not quite frankly, how I want to be spending my time now. Nope. And I wish I could go back several months ago and just say, no, nah, I can't do it. And, it's and I the appreciate most, that notion.
0: And it's the most valuable thing for people. We're all time poor. There aren't many people that aren't. And I think the biggest thing that we can give to people in the workplace is five minutes to themselves, because people know that an apple is better than a packet of crisps. Like getting off your ass <laughs> is better than sitting on it. Or giving someone a loved one a call is better than being isolated. We, we tend to know these things. We already know what we need to do to make ourselves a bit happier today. We just need the time, the space, a bit of space away from the digital tools and the psychological safety to avail of them. And I think I've kind of got to a point now where all of my thinking and history and my story and what I've been through and the experience of digital transformation is culminating this point. And now I'm the future of well-being leader for Deloitte. And I've kind of amalgamated all of that and I tell stories Every day, and I think by doing it like a normal person, being completely transparent and vulnerable, and sharing the shit that I've been through, combining it with the future of work, I think we're coming to a pretty cool place. I'm super excited to see what the next few months have in store and how my story develops.
1: Well, I love this because this is this podcast is all about people telling their stories of where they got knocked in their ass and now how they're living a good life which which obviously you are. But I'm also very interested in somebody with your unique way of thinking and how to do well-being right. So I do have a couple more questions on well-being and one is I'd love to get your thoughts on the responsibility for well-being, mm-hmm. and is it your personal responsibility or corporate? Cause there's a lot of times people think, well, I'm going to go work at X, Y, E organization, or yeah. X, Y, Z, excuse me. Mm-hmm. They're responsible for doing everything so that I'm happy and well. Uh, but then I probably subscribe more to the fact now I'm kind of leading uh, the question, but I subscribe to the fact that at the end of the day, you're responsible for everything in your life. So maybe if you could talk about that balance, cause both of them do have a role.
0: Mate, it's a combo like anything, like any good consultant worth their grade. Now I say, it depends. <laughs> um, it depends, exactly. Yeah, that's it. You know, you know that one well. Um, but it it isn't down to the organization to fix the individual, and I think a lot of them overstep. What I think they should do is focus simply on reducing the stresses and the things that are making people sick in the first place. I just want to go to a workplace or environment where I can prioritize the things I need each day, And make sure I have time and space to do them. And then provide the solutions for the people to use. So the organisation doesn't have a right to step in for the person. The individual has to do that. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But what the organisation should do is try to limit the stresses, the the draws on well-being, to try to create the environment for the individual to flourish. Because what each individual needs is completely separate and different. What you need is different to me what i need is different to someone else so to assume that you know what people need and come up with this blanket solution for everyone is bound to fail because was it if you prioritize everything you prioritize nothing it's kind of the same sort of thing right if you provide a solution for everyone right. you support no one so right. for me it's just about creating the space time flexibility autonomy psychological safety and then you let people do what they need in that time, and then with the individual when they're good and ready, like we discussed, they will come and use the solutions.
1: Ryan, there's been a lot of companies—I'll say tech companies, actually, probably yeah. most of them—that are well known for how awesome, at least the on office. the surface, their well-being yep. programs are. Yet they're laying everybody off. Yep. How do you how do you reconcile that in your mind?
0: Uh, so. We're doing some work at the moment where we're quantifying essentially the cost of poor wellbeing on the organisation and showing them how much they're losing currently in attrition due to stress, absenteeism and everything else. It's currently seen as a cost by most organisations, but when you get it right and you create places where people can thrive, it actually generates revenue because happier people make, might make more sales and make make more money for the business. It's a no brainer. We know that personally, but the data hasn't been clear. It's really interesting. I was with the team uh, from Oxford University last week at the World Happiness Summit in Lake Como. Things have changed since building sites <laughs> and hastings, that is for sure. <laughs> but, um, and they just done the, the world's largest study ever that, pot, that shows definitely the link between well-being or happiness and productivity in the workplace. And they found that for BT, British Telecom, massive employer here in the UK over two years, I believe it was, At one point increase in happiness equals a 12% increase in sales.
1: Jesus. Yeah, like that's amazing. Amazing,
0: like an amazing link that's shown. And the way we're seeing it in workplace at the moment, we're seeing well-being is an afterthought, we focus on the bottom line, and that's why these redundancies are being made because they're being done to cut the cost base, right? Whereas when we shift the perception of what an organization is to the stakeholders rather than simply just the shareholders. People first organization, create places where people can thrive. You watch the business performance step up, and they did another study that I'll share with you. So they took a well-being metric, applied it to the companies in the S and P 500, the Dow Jones, and the Nasdaq. The top ten companies, essentially with regards to their score and well-being, were compared to the rest of the indices or the rest of the index. Over the last two years, the market value of the top 10 companies rose by 30%. The rest of the index rose by 10%. And that's in bull and bear markets. So not only are people more productive when they're happy, but organizations are more productive when their people are happy. So this is going to result in a change in thinking. This study and this research is going to change the way that it's seen in the organization. You watch. Yeah, this, is like, this is like ground zero.
1: I was going to say, there you go, CFOs. Take a listen. Yeah, wow. This stuff matters.
0: <laughs> and, then, and then do it, make it fun, make it engageable because right. work is long and you can't meditate your way for 14-hour day. But what you can do is give people a little space, time, leverage up the flexibility, provide the solutions, and when people are good and ready, they will come and use them. When you do this and you encourage smart people to wake, work in a way that suits them, Enable them to be healthish, healthish with their selfish with their health. I think it's the least selfish thing one can do. Then you watch that organisation will flourish compared to the rest. And we're starting to see it, and that's the work we're doing with clients, and that's what me and my team do around the world now. And I live such a purpose-driven life, like I flip and love it. I struggle, do struggle to say no, and I'm getting better at it, like we were talking about. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. You want me to speak? Let's go. No worries, but. I just feel like this is such an important moment in time for the change in way mm-hmm. in which we work and how we see the workplace and its role in people's lives. I don't believe in work-life balance. I think it's just work-life. Uh, sorry, which work is one part of, and when we consider that and we prioritize the things that we need to do each day to be our best selves first and work second, and workplaces let people do that. You you watch there'll be a monumental difference seeing those workplaces, those that prioritize it and those that don't
1: let's do a lightning round where I'm going to shoot off a bunch of questions, maybe kind of, you know, 10-second um, answers. How does that sound?
0: Mate, let's do it. Let's go. Let's do it,
1: man. Let's do it. Let's get, grab your uh, five cups of tea. Let's go. <laughs> I'm just messing. I'm ready. I've got um, two.
0: I've had three already.
1: What, what piece of advice do you have somebody who is working for one of those organizations that are not well, or maybe they've even got a bad, bad boss? What would be your advice?
0: To prioritize your boundaries and put them in place. So if you don't put your digital boundaries in, someone else is gonna do it for you. So you can configure the tech in your
1: favor and you'll
0: find it creates a lot of space.
1: How do you stop from worrying?
0: I'm not sure it's possible to stop from worrying, but what you can do is start to write down the worries. When they're written down, they don't seem quite as serious. And then you can ask yourself a question on paper and see what comes out. I found that really helps me.
1: What's your point of view on remote versus back to office?
0: My point of view is it depends like any good consultant back to that classic answer. (laughs) It depends on the organization, but I think there's, there's a bit of need for both. You've got the hybrid paradox. People want more flexibility and more connection. I think we need a little bit of both. So we need to be tied to the work and our people, but leverage up the flexibility at the same time. There's a sweet spot.
1: Now you're probably going to say this one depends as well, but what's your point of view on more technology? It seems like every single day there's more and more technology and, and I would argue, to a certain degree, some of that technology is, is really foundational to what is creating a situation where many of us are not well. Not at work, but just in life. Mm-hmm. What's, your, what's your point of view on tech?
0: <laughs> I don't think it depends. I think in the moment, the way that tech is configured, I think less could probably help most people. I think there's definitely an overwhelm. I actually think in five, ten years, with the, with the development of Chat GPT and others, that they will actually create space in our lives. So currently, I think we could do with less. In the future, I think AI assisted like AI assistance will actually create space for us, enable us to prioritize well-being more. It's a, it's a Pollyanna view, but it's my hope.
1: Well, here's a here's a question really to set up a Pollyanna sh- answer. What is the future of well-being?
0: Future well-being for organisations is creating spaces where people can prioritize them best sell, their best selves daily. It's simply that it's it's removing the stresses, creating creating environments so people can turn up and thrive.
1: I have uh, two um, personal questions before I get to my final question. Uh, The first one is you stopped drinking. I know for Mm -hmm. a period of time, I don't know where you stand on that, but, but talk about the impact on you personally. And the reason why I raise this is because a lot of people in business, especially when you're traveled tend to drink a lot. And I do think it's got a negative impact. I've experienced it. Um, What has been the impact of you stopping drinking for a period of time?
0: So I also signed a book deal recently. So I'm republishing June 24. So I need my weekends to write, feel energetic. I used to just get to the weekend and like any good Brit, just smash down a load of beers on a Friday night, load of pints. <laughs> it's just part of our culture. Like it's not a good part, let right. but it is. And you know, feel rubbish Saturday, terrible Sunday, come back to work Monday, feeling a bit groggy, starting to feel good Tuesday, probably have a glass of wine Wednesday and then back on it Thursday. So right. this, is the, this is the cycle that everyone goes through. I feel more energized. I'm learning how to socialize without it and I'm still learning. But I th- truly think that it'll be something I stick with. My weekends feel seven years long. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I get up at half six and I'm like, it's like lunchtime. I'm like, that's literally the entirety <laughs> of my, my how my weekend used to be. So I'm actually oh, really yeah. enjoying having all that time working out, trying to do different things. I've saved so much money as well.
1: And yeah, and you probably have so much more time. You're so much more productive, I would imagine. So
0: much more time, so much more productive. But on the flip side, I'm probably too productive, if that makes mm. sense. So I'm actually then like I can squeeze and eke every second of productivity out my weekend. I'm actually finding that some of them I'm not stopping to relax much because I'm writing the book and doing others. So I've kind of got to learn how to switch off like I would when I was drinking, but not by drinking. So I'm trying to like just go to the pub and have like a non-alcoholic beer and not be thinking or doing work or work type things. So the environment's good. I think it's just the booze that, because you never have one, do you? It's always yeah, ten.
1: Never, never. So if, if people are to go in and take a view of you on LinkedIn or somewhere else, uh, they'll notice that you have a, a lot of tattoos and you have no problem showing it, which I actually love. And I think some people really believe that tattoos mirror their inner feelings what do you think your tattoos say about you
0: (laughs) that's a good question i got a few when i was younger working on building site and i don't i as i aged i just didn't feel like they were me and recently i got some of them done over with the two sleeves that you've seen and that feels like me so the thinking behind the japanese tattoo is my left arm which would have nothing on is a dragon, and a dragon is where essentially the koi is fully formed. So I am a flipping dragon, and that's how I feel, and that's how I had done recently. My right side, which had some cover-up stuff, was just background, and that was my development. So I got some on my legs. I just feel – they make me feel more confident. Every, every tattoo I got, I just felt like I was stepping into my own skin and the person I was meant to be, and now I feel like I'm fully formed, just like the dragon on my left arm.
1: So, Ryan, when I created this podcast, I, I did call it time to sing your song. Um, Led Zeppelin, Ramble On, unbelievable song. But uh, the reason why I did is I think all of us yearn for a day where we're singing our song, where we're doing the thing that we were meant to do. And what I love about your journey is the fact that you had a point of view early on that your your long-term goal was going to be to be a Sparky, to be an electrician, but something really bad happened to you. And you got to a point where, you know, like you said, you were suicidal, you had bulimia, you had depression, and you slowly but surely, because of many things, including these small wins and the love from your mom, have created this wonderful life that you're leading now. So when you think about the journey that you've been on over the last several years, what song comes to mind? <laughs>
0: What song comes to mind? Oh. Or
1: even genre.
0: It's gotta be it's gotta be like disco house. I don't know why that's the first thing that comes to mind. Like some like funky like ABBA remix, like a toe tapper, something that's got good energy and just lifts as it goes. Something that everyone likes and enjoys. So I'm going I to say, that. Abba, lay your love on me. I was listening to that this morning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and and it almost feels like it's because of the vibe. Is, is oh, that mate, why you picked
0: not so much because of the words. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely because of the vibe, for sure. I love that.
1: I love that. Well, Ryan, man, thank you very much for spending the better part of an hour with me. This was so awesome on so many levels. I mean, one, I just have a personal interest in well-being. In, in many respects, the journey you've been on. Uh, inspires me to continue to do the things that I want to do to help people. I know if if people go to your LinkedIn, it says that you want to help a billion people. And yep. I think of Austin Powers whenever I hear that, like to <laughs> Evil, right? <laughs> I've got the same haircut. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, but man, I hope I hope you're able to do that. And I think there's probably not a better person. So Ryan, thank you so much for your time today.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it and everything you do.
1: Damn, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, Ryan. You are really a good dude. You've inspired me on so many levels, but most importantly, to use every opportunity to authentically share my story. That's what sets you apart. You're changing lives by going deep on the dark places that you came from. I also love how light you are in your delivery. Keep it up. I'm going to be watching as you go for a billion. If you like my conversation with Ryan, go back to past episodes to hear other amazing stories of people who were once lost or broken and now are singing their song. Big thank you to everyone who listens to Time to Sing Your Song and being part of this community I am building. My goal is to help everyday people like you and me use the hard times as a catalyst to create a life we were all meant to live. Until next time. Start singing your song today because, as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place, something you have left behind. Let it be something good.